News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Stay the fuck home. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, the Daily Beast and the Daily News, coming to you from Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn. And on the phone with Christina Greer of Fordham University is in Crown Heights. Hello. Hello. I'm also uh, the political editor at the Grio now. And a political editor of the Grio now and a columnist at the Amsterdam News and just generally all about town, even in isolation. Yes, indeed. And Alex Lynn of Wacket Media, who's in Greenwich Village. Hello. Hi, Alex. It's Wednesday afternoon, and Cogsamac, to all of our listeners, having satyrs in this plague year. So I doubt many of you will be leaving the door open for Elijah. <laughs> I want to find the Afi Coleman. I wish I was invited to someone's satyr. You can zoom into ours. I just might. Can I, can I zoom in? Can I like zoom bomb the um full disclosure. Family? Full disclosure. I, I I I told my parents that we were not doing a zoom theater. It's too much. Too much. <laughs> so we've been talking with New Yorkers all week to find out what things look like from other people's corners of the city. You're gonna be hearing from them shortly. Uh Chrissy, fill us in on who you've been in contact with. So this week I spoke to Nikita Stewart of the New York Times, uh, who has a forthcoming book out called Troop Six Thousand. Girl Scout troop that began in a shelter and inspired the world. And I just asked her some questions about uh, some of the troop members that she's been highlighting in her articles in the Times and also in her forthcoming book. But we also had a broader conversation about the homeless population in New York City. Uh, roughly 58,000 people live in shelters on any given day. And uh, sort of what the homeless shelter system will possibly look like, just because we know with the economic downturn in New York City. Uh, we'll probably see the homeless population of not just adults, but children increase pretty significantly in the upcoming months. And you and I talked today with Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who reached out to share his concerns about the virus's racially disparate impact, and who offered a harsh and sort of backward-looking assessment of the city's efforts up until now. Alex, who have you been talking to? So earlier in the week, I spoke with Sarah Dowd, a nurse at Harlem Hospital, about how our healthcare system has been cut to the bone, as she puts it. And on Wednesday, that's today, I talked with Gwen Hogan of WNYC about her scoop on the number of New Yorkers dying at home now. Over 200 a day, up from 20 to 25 a day this time last year. And most of them haven't been included in the official virus death count. So that's got implications on how much we trust these numbers, including... So we've got like 779 deaths statewide in the last 24 hours, with the total number of confirmed cases up to 149,316, which is more than any other country. So that's New York. Um, you know, to put that in some perspective, right, there were, I think, 316 murders in New York City all of last year. We're talking about 779 deaths in New York State in a day. Meantime, the Daily Beast has um, obtained this fire department data we put up today showing that EMS crews in New York reported 2,192 dead on arrival calls over the last two weeks. It's up from 493 over the same period last year, so four and a half times as many. 
and as disturbing, the number of cardiac respiratory arrest calls has exploded from 20 or 30 a day last year to more than 100 every day this year since March 28th, and we're now up to 322 as of Sunday. And while around 40% of those calls ended in the death last year, that percentage is now up to 75%. Although doctors I'm speaking with say part of that may be that first responders, EMTs, have new protocols for, for what they're responding to because of the coronavirus, and that some of those people perhaps would, would have ended up dying in an ER after more attempts to resuscitate. We also have Mayor de, uh, de Blasio and Governor Cuomo now cautiously saying our efforts to flatten the curve appear to be working. We have enough ventilators and personal protective equipment for the time being. Alex, I know the nurse you talked to has some thoughts on that. Although the mayor stressed Wednesday, again, the need for us to go deeper into the woods, his phrase, and remain isolated to ensure the curve doesn't turn up again. So with all that, let's jump right in. Chrissy, what are you seeing from Crown Heights this week? Are people hearing the mayor's message about the need to uh, stay inside and away from other people? I don't think so. Um, unfortunately, Eastern Parkway is is a beautiful spring promenade. I just looked out my window. I can see about 10 people, none of whom are wearing masks. Um, in the morning, it's pretty crowded, lots of biking, lots of walking, lots of people sitting on benches. It looks like they're trying to social distance, but they're about three feet away. Uh, there was a cluster of 18-year-olds near my building uh, two days ago, and it's about eight of them. Um, and I, you know, I, I know one of them, he lives in my building and I was like, Hey, you guys need to social distance. And they looked at me like I was an alien and I was like, coronavirus, you all should be, you know, six feet away from one another. And they just kind of shrugged. So, I mean, that may just be 18 year olds being invincible, but as far as people walking along Eastern Parkway, it's far too many people clustered together, um, not six feet apart. And I definitely have not seen many gloves and masks, unfortunately. Yeah, I've got like, there's got to be at least like 20 to 30 skateboarder teenagers all around Washington Square Park almost every day. No gloves, no mask, sharing cigarettes. And I mean, I'm not sure who's going to be responsible for the fines that, or if juveniles are going to be issued these so, new social distancing fines, but it's uh, it's a little bit staggering. And why would they stop? Because so many adults are also just hanging out in the park. Less than before, less than like last week, but still quite a number. So Cuomo has doubled the uh, stay-at-home fines to $1,000 now for not social distancing. But I don't think anyone is thinking about the fines, really. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, because we have fines. And then, you know, we know that the NYPD does not necessarily police uh, the same way in every single neighborhood. So what concerns me is that certain individuals would get fines and others might get a trip to their local precinct, which puts them in great danger uh, for contacting the virus if they're thrown into a cell with several other individuals. Now, I'm not saying that that has happened, and I'm saying it will happen, but I think we can look at police and policing data from, I don't know, the past 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years to show us that, you know, communities of color, marginalized communities, and poorer communities are over-policed in particular ways. So I'm just hoping that during this sort of crucial time period, we won't see these inequities that we've definitely seen over time. Alex, you've been monitoring and asking questions on uh, Mayor de Blasio and uh, Governor Cuomo's daily press calls. Now, fill us in on, uh, fill us in on the uh, state of New York in the midst of all this as you're seeing it. 
I can't say that it inspires a whole lot of confidence, some of the stuff we've seen going on in the past week. There's been a lot of what I like to call no shit moments. So like no shit, the highly contagious virus was going to disproportionately affect poorer communities. And especially as we're seeing in the numbers, the city's Hispanic population. And the mayor just now announced that he's putting huge amounts of resources into what always should have been a full force multilingual campaign to make sure all New Yorkers understood, understand the protocols, precautions, and resources. For this to only be starting now is disappointing to say the least. Another no shit moment was that we need more PPE, personal protective equipment. And healthcare workers, uh, you see across the board, not just in the city, but also in the country, are breaking rules and disobeying direct orders from their higher ups in hospitals, some nurses, you'll hear stories of nurses and doctors being fired, disobeying orders to tell the public about the lack of supplies they have. So Dr. Mitchell Katz, the president and CEO of Health and Hospitals, has addressed this several times. Both him and the mayor keep declaring that we have like enough equipment and there'll be these deadlines and then we'll run out at this time. But then they say, okay, we have just enough for healthcare workers. But from the actual mouths of the healthcare workers that we're hearing from, they're saying it's not good enough. They're saying that they've run out of supplies already. The only difference is that OSHA and the Joint Commission have relaxed standards to the point that now officials can say they have enough when by any realistic standard that protects them against the virus, they do not. We were looking at nurses that have dates written on their masks because they're expected to wear them for a full week on their N95 masks. Sarah Dowd, a nurse at Harlem Hospital, we interviewed her on Sunday on the eve of this big, you know, press conference that a bunch of NYC healthcare workers were giving on Monday. Uh, my name is Sarah Dowd. I work at Harlem Hospital uh, as a registered nurse, and it's been crazy. We are definitely uh, feeling the pandemic at my facility, our current protocol, according to the hospitals, that we'll get one N95 respirator for every five shifts that we work. So that's approximately 60 hours of work um, that we're supposed to have the same mask. We're concerned because it's not clear that, that they're effective for that length of time. Um, we're also seeing a lot of nurses and techs and respiratory therapists get sick. Um, they're not getting, until recently, we're not getting tested, um, but we're coming down with all of the symptoms, high fevers, cough, um, shortness of breath. Uh, most of my coworkers had at least a, a low-grade fever. You would say most of most your Most co-work- of my coworkers. Wow. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about the N95 mask? Some, what happens if a mask gets damaged? What are they telling you? They're telling us that if, if it gets damaged, they will give us a new one. Um, however, if you're wearing it continuously for 12 plus hours, it's getting, you know, you're, as you exhale, you're exhaling moisture onto it. And that compromises the integrity of the mask. It makes it more permeable to um, pathogens. You know, they're telling us that that under those circumstances, okay, you could have a new one, but there's a whole process. It's a, it's a huge hurdle to get a new one. We have to go um, sign for it in the command center. Um, there has to be a whole conversation about what happens. It's not accessible. 
And, you know, we see Cuomo on TV saying no one can say that there's not enough PPE. And, you know, if you're following our hospital's protocol, that's right. There's, there's enough PPE, but our hospital's protocol has not been proven to be effective at protecting workers. The other no-shit moment is that as far as numbers in general, right now, the death count, the confirmed cases, they really don't reflect reality at all. There are so many of the dead that are undercounted. The city is only counting people that died in hospitals. There's so much red tape that's been reported around seeking medical attention that the amount of home deaths have just skyrocketed. Gwen Hogan reported for the Gothamist this week and broke that story, which was uh, pretty amazing and is kind of rocking the local news circuit and the national news circuit today. Well, with that, let's listen to this interview with Gwen. Hi, Gwen. How are you today? Doing okay. How are you? Pretty good. I was so amazed and impressed by the reporting of this piece, which really just encompasses some of the problems that New Yorkers are facing trying to get an appropriate perception of what the virus is doing to our city. Um, and and the problems that other cities are going to face. Could you walk me through a little bit of your reporting and what it means? Sure. So we had been hearing that there was a big increase in the number of people dying at home. So before they could make it to healthcare settings. And so I was trying to figure out, as I'm sure other reporters were, if these deaths were ruled COVID. And what I was able to determine, you know, I I went back and forth between the medical examiner's office and the health department like seven times over the course of Monday and Friday and Thursday before that and basically determined that the medical examiner visits a home and will interview the family and then say, okay, this is a probable COVID death if the person had cough, fever, shortness of breath, sort of these kind of symptoms before they passed away. And then they were sending that information to the health department. But the health department was telling me, actually, we only Our cases are lab-confirmed cases. These are laboratory-confirmed cases. We couldn't possibly report anything that was suspected because that wouldn't be accurate. So it was becoming clearer to me that there was this large number of, of deaths that the fire department had a document of because they were visiting all these scenes that were not factored in anywhere into the reporting on COVID-19 deaths. Um, And what were those numbers like? So, for instance, you know, this year as opposed to last year, that was an incredible statistic uh, we read in your piece this morning. So the FDNY gave me the statistics for a period from March 20th through Sunday night. So like a two and a half week period, basically. And they gave me last year's numbers and they gave me this year's numbers. And the Deaths last year at home that they responded to, it wavered between like 25 and 30 every day. It was, I think it was 26 was the average and, and pretty stagnant rate, you know, up a few one day, down a few another day. But this year, what we saw over the last two and a half weeks was every day there were more and more of these home deaths. 
um, starting at around, I want to say, 60. And by Sunday night, which was the highest number yet, I think there were 241 deaths that occurred at home outside of hospital settings. So really, really dramatic when you compare it to last year. It's a 400, almost a 400 percent increase in deaths occurring at home over a two-week period. So what does this say about the numbers that New Yorkers are like so attached to and these numbers where we're talking about death rates going up, death rates going down, where Cuomo and de Blasio are both pointing to things and say, look, we're plateauing or look, we're about to hit a surge. What does this tell New Yorkers who aren't in government about some of these numbers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very disconcerting because, you know, on the one hand, the total number of cases we know that number is totally fake because we're actively being told not to get tested if we have COVID-19 and don't need hospital care. So we knew that that top number was just random. But I thought, you know, before this, we sort of had this trust that we were at least getting an idea of how many people were dying and how many people were hospitalized. So now, I mean, we know the hospitals are reporting their numbers so we can trust okay so that's got to be sort of more or less correct but this death number is apparent i mean seems totally inaccurate you know like we had as of yesterday three just over three thousand i think three hundred five three thousand five hundred around deaths in new york city there were two thousand and one hundred deaths that occurred outside of hospital settings in homes. So that's like that's like a seventy percent increase if all those deaths are COVID related. And again, we don't we don't know exactly how many are. Like somebody could have died of a heart attack unrelated to COVID, or they could have been not able to get medical care for diabetes or heart disease or any other thing. And as and we so- know today, De Blasio is saying that he's going to start a robust. Uh, Spanish language campaign because of the numbers that came out uh, profiling uh, the deaths Mm -hmm. and the hospitalization by race. And a lot of the people, whether they're undocumented, there's a lot of different kinds of groups in the city that for whatever reason does not like going to the authorities and will avoid a hospital at all costs. And how Absolutely. And even though we uh of the press know because we listen to de Blasio every day that apparently, you know, ICE is stepping back from these hospitals, how do like first generation Hispanic immigrants know that? because there hasn't been such a wide dissemination of information. So there's a lot of factors, I think, that play into people not going to hospitals and not seeking the proper yeah, medical care. I mean, care. and it's even, it's even also people that went to hospitals and were told that they weren't sick enough to be admitted. I mean, that's what I've been hearing from EMTs, that like the families where these people are dying have said, we, ta- we called 311, we were seeking care, or we even went to a hospital and then the person wasn't sick enough at that time. So it's both of these things, like people who may not have sought care to begin with because they were afraid or they didn't have a doctor or they didn't speak English, but it's also people that tried to get care and weren't able to because our systems are overwhelmed. Wow. And there's no mechanism of follow-up within the FDNY. And the ME, Medical Examiner's Office, their follow-up, especially now with the death rate, it takes 
even longer than it originally did. And I think originally, I mean, a couple of years ago, I know that for like a toxicology, that already took weeks. So yeah, I mean, that's a totally other, I mean, yes, right? Like our, we know that doctors and nurses are getting reinforcements from all across the country. There have been some elected officials like Councilman Mark Levine in particular, who's been calling for reinforcements for the medical examiner's office. And I've heard anecdotally, and I haven't, I'm working to confirm some of this, that their response times are like, you know, it's the same number of people, if not less, because they're doing way more. And they have to examine every single one of these bodies. And so sometimes, I mean, I talked to one EMT who was waiting at the scene, and this is what they do a lot of the time. EMTs should be going to another house call, but instead they're waiting at the scene for the police department to arrive, who've also gotten sick, so they have longer response times. Or they're waiting for the medical examiner to arrive, and it can take hours. So, yeah, like, are there reinforcements coming for the medical examiner's offices in in the city and in the state? Well, is there anything I haven't really asked you or touched on that you think is important for our listeners to know about this story? Stay the fuck home. <laughs> Stay home. Thank you. Gwen, it is – your reporting on this is so amazing and so important. Thank you so much for joining us on FAQ today. Uh, We are recording on Wednesday. um, And again, stay safe and thank you for your work. Thanks for having me. So this week I spoke to Nikita Stewart of The New York Times, uh, who has a forthcoming book out called Troop 6000, the Girl Scout troop that began in a shelter and inspired the world. And I just asked her some questions about some of the troop members that she's been highlighting in her articles in The Times and also in her forthcoming book. But we also had a broader conversation about the homeless population in New York City. Uh, Roughly 58,000 people live in shelters on any given day. And what the homeless shelter system will possibly look like, just because we know with the economic downturn in New York City, uh, we'll probably see the homeless population of not just adults, but children increase pretty significantly in the upcoming months. So let's take a listen. Good morning, Nikita. How are you? I'm doing fine. How about you? Oh, we're, we're, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us on FAQ. You have written some really powerful pieces in the Times about Troop 6000. Can you tell us a little bit more about this troop? Sure. Um, in 2017, I came across a story. I heard about a Girl Scout troop that had started in a hotel that had been turned into a shelter. Um, I quickly learned that the troop leader actually worked for the Girl Scouts. So she was working. We call it having a good job, right? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't enough to pay back rent that she had when she was out of work and when she was ill. And so she and her daughters, and she had a son, uh, they ended up in a shelter. And her job was to start troops in other places. And she said, well, why don't I just start a troop here? There were so many girls living in the hotel along with her girls. And they all didn't really talk to each other. There were no play dates or sleepovers. You know, those activities were not allowed in the shelter. And so she took it to her bosses. There were a lot of people who were in the right place at the right time. And the troop started. I wrote a story about the troop. 
it went viral. And what started with eight girls is now at more than 500 girls and women in 20 different shelters around the city. And the the stories you've written about them are, are quite inspiring, but they're also pretty devastating to think about the number of children who are currently living in transitional housing and homeless shelters and hotels across the city. Yes, we, we all have this image of homelessness. It's, you know, a man or a woman on the subway asking for change or on the sidewalk with a cardboard sign. And yes, that's one face, but the other face of homelessness are the families who are on the subway with you, who you do not know are going to a shelter each night. The city's main shelter system has about 58,000 people, 60,000 on its worst days. And the single biggest population are children under the age of 18. They're about 20,000, um, 23,000 on a worse day. And then also we have to remember all of the children who live doubled up and tripled up. They are also counted as homeless. And so, you know, the New York City public school system has about 114,000 homeless students. Wow. Have you been able to speak to any of the girls in Troop 6000 since the coronavirus pandemic has hit New York City and we've started our shelter in place and and stay at home efforts? Yes. And actually, I, I wrote a story about the difficulty of remote learning because I was inspired by one of the scouts who reached out to me saying, oh, my gosh, Nikita, what am I going to do? I don't have the right equipment. And how am I going to get school done? How is my sister going to complete her online classes? They, you know, she had actually reached out to 311 and she was like, they said they don't know anything. And so I did not interview her for the story. We've crossed the line and I'm very close to her. So that maybe wouldn't have been uh, appropriate, but she inspired me to go ahead and look at what was happening with remote learning, which led to another story that went viral about how children are not only without computers and the necessary equipment they need, um, they also do not have internet. Children who experience homelessness already have difficulty academically, and I am so worried about what this pandemic is going to do with the education of children, not only in New York City, but all around the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Children who just don't have the same support systems or their parents are essential workers who have to go out in the world every day. Right. I mean, because the framing is that this is the the great equalizer. But as we're seeing, there are lots of children whose parents are working on the front lines in service capacities every single day. And they they don't have the luxury of sitting in front of a laptop with their parents' assistants helping them with assignments. Yes, that's exactly what's happening right now. Um, And uh, you know, I, I don't even have the answers um, for, you know, school districts all around the country. I, I don't have any answers. Is yeah. there is there anything that you would have wanted Mayor de Blasio or the school chancellor Carranza to do differently to assist the girls? I think that it could have been beneficial to not only, you know, true 6,000 girls, but all children around the city to just have 
clearer answers and to set expectations of when computers um, with internet access would be delivered. A lot of families were just confused about that process. Everything changes day to day. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, we want our leaders to be held accountable, but we know this is unprecedented. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I had talked to other people when I was working on a story about remote learning um, about, well, shouldn't they maybe think about canceling spring break since they've already lost a week? I actually had no idea, though, that teachers would be in an uproar because they have already been working basically all hours, seven days a week and really needed that break. So, you know, I I wish I had answers. I just I I don't have them. And that's why we elect leaders who are supposed to be smarter than us. Right. So I'm hoping they put their heads together and do something. Right. Right. And are any of the girls and the families very concerned about contracting COVID-19 in such close quarters? Uh, Yes. You know, I have talked to folks who have symptoms. Actually, uh, one person, she is in the book. Can I have to read the book? She is, uh, I I know some folks who are in self-quarantine and uh, another one of the scouts, unfortunately, her great grandmother died and the funeral was very difficult because they couldn't have people attending. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is just affecting everyone. Um, it's just awful. Yeah, right. Well, Nikita, we so appreciate the stories you're writing to lift up the voices of these girls and their families um, in such a, it was a critical time before. And we know that. Um, It'll be even more severe once we're on the other side of this. But for those of uh, our listeners who want to read more, please check out Nikita Stewart at the New York Times. She's written several stories about Troop 6000 and the girls of our city. And her book, Troop 6000, The Girl Scout Troop That Began in a Shelter and Inspired the World. Is it out yet or is it pre-order? It is uh, on pre-order. It comes out on uh, May 19th. I already got a message saying that because of COVID-19, deliveries could be uh, delayed, but please order because it will be coming to you. And, you know, this conversation that we're having has been very solemn, as it should be at this time. But what I loved about working on the book is that there is joy every day. Mm-hmm. And I think many times when people are writing about poverty and vulnerable populations, they tend to show one side. And if you read uh, my stories <laughs> carefully, um, not that people would read every story that I write, um, but if you do, you will see that there's always some laughter, some joke that someone has told because everyone laughs. And I think it's important to show that side of people. And with Troop 6000, there were a lot of ups and downs. But the great thing about the Girl Scouts is that the organization really brought joy and laughter and fun to girls when they really needed it. Thank you so much, Nikita. I'm really inspired by your writing, um, but especially by your writing about Troop 6000. And I really appreciate what you've done to really highlight this um, for for all of your readers. 
So stay oh, safe. Thank you so much. And we will talk soon. I've been speaking with Nikita Stewart from the New York Times. Uh, it is Tuesday, April 7th, and we are all sheltering in place. And we will be pre-ordering her book, Troop 6000, The Girl Scout Troop That Began in a Shelter and Inspired the World. Thanks so much. Thank you. This week, Harry and Chrissy interviewed Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams and didn't have to ask the question because we all just assumed that he was caring during this crisis. Let's take a listen. Eric Adams. Hey, it's Harry Siegel. Hold on one second. I'm just bringing in uh, Professor Green. Hi there. I'm here. Hey, how's it going? Good to speak with both of you. Hi, Borough President. How are you? Good. One day at a time. One foot in front of the other. <laughs> hope you know, hope your families have been able to navigate the complexities of this coronavirus stuff. And I'll see yeah. you guys are healthy. Knock on wood so far. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us again. Um, let's jump right in with these numbers. You'd reached out to me a few days ago with your concern about uh, disparities with who the coronavirus is impacting. And we finally got numbers from the health department today showing that age-adjusted African-Americans are 28% of deaths here, while representing 22% of the population. Hispanics are 34%, we're 29% of the population. What should New Yorkers be making of all this, and what do we need to be changing now in the midst of this crisis? Well, uh, first, uh, those numbers come with an asterisk, because it's really uh, roughly 60% of the numbers that we have polled and there's a series of things why our numbers are lacking in accuracy based on our reporting information but we used to say in the police department uh, that bodies don't lie and so there's no reason that our ME, our hospitals those deaths that have taken place we should have those numbers because the information should be on the death certificate and we know exactly what happened when someone expired we have also a substantial number of people who have died uh, inside their homes. Uh, those numbers need to be calculated. And here's why this is important. Several weeks ago, I had a conversation with the presidents of the hospitals in the borough of Brooklyn. And something that came out of the conversations on two fronts. One, they stated that at that time, the Department of Health was determining whoever gets an actual test. And they had to go over the CDC's hurdles of having uh, basically a severe state of flu-like symptoms. In central Brooklyn, every 10 tests that my hospitals were attempted to get done, only one of them was getting approved. So if that was coming out of central Brooklyn, right away it told me we were undercounting uh, communities. And if you undercounted a community... You were not able to see the clusters, and you were not able to see where you were going to push resources to. The second thing that came out of the conversation was regardless of, of what was being said at the high end of government, there was a lack of personal protection equipment for hospital personnel and essential employees. So think about this for a moment. If over 70% of the essential employees of the city are, are black and brown, according to the controller's report, we were sending them on the trains uh, to go uh, stock out food shelves. We were sending them uh, to be 9-11 operators, to be correction officers, to be all of these agencies and uh, services to provide for those who had the luxury 
to uh, telecommute. You can't telecommute as a 9-11 operator. You can't telecommute as a bus driver. So you had a, a part of this city that was servicing another part of the city that was allowed to be removed from harm's way, but we didn't give them personal protection equipment in the process. And so they were taking this virus home to their families. They were taking this virus among themselves. We created what we're looking at right now because of our slow response and not getting the needed equipment to the people on the ground. So this doesn't surprise me. I heard this three weeks ago. I made several attempts to convey this uh, to all levels of government, and it fell on deaf ears until these numbers have come out and it showed the reality of what we're dealing with. That's why I was in, in, in NYCHA handing out masks to NYCHA residents uh, and communicating with, uh, with this. And let me give you this last part that's very important. Our communication mechanism. Everyone does not wake up in the morning and run to the corner store and get the New York Times. Everyone does not sit in front of the television and listen to Trump, the governor and the mayor, give a debriefing. People communicate during different avenues. We should have placed on top of our census communication network we should have placed the coronavirus communication as well. There was already an infrastructure in place. We should have advertised in local papers, local radios, uh, podcasts. We need to communicate not in the echo chambers of those at the high end of government. We should have been communicating with people on the ground. I was in Canarsie. I saw two young people playing basketball. I went over to them and said, hey, guys, you should be, uh, you know, social distancing. They said, what the hell is social distancing? Like, who's talking to the people on the ground? We, we were not. We were talking to each other. And, and so, that's so, why we saw the results. Well, President, so what are you doing now? Who are you communicating with to actually get this message out? Because, you know, we know that the mayor um, is, has his own forms of communication. Um, have you been in touch with the mayor and the Speaker of the City Council? And how are you getting the message out to people in Brooklyn? Um, just because clearly there's been some sort of delay, if not uh, relatively zero communication about how, how severe this is. On, on, the, on the ground, you know, I was criticized. Uh, you know, why is Eric out there? Uh, why is he going to NYCHA? Uh, why is Eric uh, giving out masks to correctional officers such and such? Uh, I knew because I was on the ground, I was hearing directly from the people who were being admitted to the hospital or turned away from the hospital. We had a call with all of our various ethnic media to tell them, I need, we need for you to communicate with your constituency. Uh, we knew that this was a hand-to-hand battle. This was not a battle where the Air Force could just be 20,000 feet high. We had an on-the-ground uh, application and process taking place in the borough of Brooklyn. So we've had seven bus operators from different terminals and different bureau, uh, boroughs who have, who have died so far from this. The MTA has been very hard hit. There have been 33 deaths so far as compared to, uh, you know, 13 members of the NYPD, for instance. Um, I, I'm curious if you've been involved at all in trying to get any changes to how bus service is working. I know there are concerns that the routes that are still getting heavy use, this hasn't been adjusted. I don't believe Mayor de Blasio has spoken to his MTA board members about this, that those buses, I, I see them go by, they're still really crowded in the midst of all this. And go back two and a half weeks ago, we were at the Flatbush uh, Flat bus depot 
on uh, off of Flatbush and UK Avenue with a group of bus operators and transit uh, uh, frontline employees who were saying, hey, we need um, PPEs, we need personal protection equipment. Uh, we were able to give them a handful, but we don't have the same volume that the city and state have, uh, will have access to. So these frontline employees were asking for help almost two and a half weeks ago. And those buses that we talked about, because we had those large number of people who have contracted coronavirus, they couldn't come in, so we cut services. So we, we now have cramped a body of people into our train and bus services who have to go service the city. And they don't have the personal protection equipment. And we told them from the beginning they didn't have to. When the CDC and the city now comes out and say, hey, you know what, guys? You should have been wearing. Well, uh, President, how are you communicating directly with the mayor right now? Number one, the mayor. Uh, the mayor had two conference calls, three three calls in total, with one with all of the electors, and he had two with the borough-wide and city-wide electors. Here's, here's the biggest issue that I'm having right now with the city and state of New York. Globally, there is no shortage of personal protection equipment, and we need to understand that. There are hundreds of millions uh, the California governor uh, just used their procurement power to purchase a substantial amount. We have introduced to the state procurement process and the city procurement process because of my sister city agreements in China. My sister cities have been willing to find distributors uh, to get millions of PPEs here in the city. Stefan Marbury uh, communicated with me from China. 14 days ago, I gave the contacts of several companies that could bring millions of PPEs to the city a week. We have yet to sign one contract. And and we were able to negotiate a dollar amount that was substantially lower than the $7 and $6 that the city and state is paying. We were able to get these devices for $2.75 for N95s. We have yet to bring one mask here from that. That's troubling. Mr. Borough President, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Is there anything you want to uh, leave our listeners with as they're looking forward to uh, what is and should be happening from here? Well, you know, I learned from September 11th that uh, the uh, 9-11 related injuries impact the individual officers physically and emotionally impacted the family. Some of them are still sick from it. This is a different case in point. Uh, uh, coronavirus is not going to only impact the individual person who's an essential employee. They can take this home to their family. Good friend of mine took it home to their son, uh, who is of uh, sickle cell anemia, and he was on a respir- respirator. This is going to impact real families, and we cannot allow uh, the most vulnerable with pre-existing conditions, which are basically poor, black, and brown. We can't allow them to uh, come through this more harm than others have come through it. And that is important. We're in this together. Let's take the precaution, but let's also make sure that we get the services to those on the ground. Thank you so much for joining us. We know you're incredibly busy. Thank you. Take care. Bye. It's going to be another week that's going to feel like a century. What are you guys looking ahead to, Alex? I want to see what the mayor de Blasio's plan, how he starts initiating that plan to engage our Spanish speaking population. Uh, Cuomo's response to the 
numbers of people dying in their homes was saying that they're going to look for new ways of counting. And whatever that means, I'm interested to see how that goes. The good news we had this week was that the federal government allowed us to use the U.S. Comfort and the Javits Center as actual COVID hospitals. So at least that's something that's moving. Chrissy, what are your expectations for people congregating for the uh, for the holidays for Passover and Easter? Well, I really hope that pastors and imams and rabbis and priests will continue to sort of ring the alarm and tell their congregants to stay in place and stay at home. Uh, hopefully, lots of folks will live stream if they haven't started already. I mean, my concern is that it is Easter Sunday and it's sort of Passover weekend and a lot of people of different faiths. Even if you're kind of a once a year religious person, this is kind of the the weekend that you tend to to tap in. So I'm really hoping that a lot of folks will use um, Zoom or Google FaceTime or whatever it may be to um, stay at home, even if they feel the need to celebrate. Chrissy, the big question here, I say for the end, is you brought up the phrase ring the alarm. Is the true and correct song ring the alarm the Fushnikin song? from 1991, or the Beyonce song from roughly, let's say, 2013? Okay, Harry. Beyonce. That is a ridiculous question, and Alex, that's a ridiculous answer. It is the Hooshnickens. Please, people, it will forever be the Hooshnickens. It is not Beyonce. We can get all the hate mail we want. (laughs) But It was a great Beyonce song. I played it probably over a hundred times. Well, this podcast supports Solange, so that's where we are, and all the hate mail can go wherever it goes because, hey, we're all sheltering in place, so we won't get it anyway. Stay the fuck home. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is hosted by NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. This week, we recorded from our respective boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. As always, this episode is mixed and mastered by Adam Kamara. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Harry Siegel and Christina Greer are trying to bring you the facts while we shelter in place. Stay safe.